Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Unafraid, the show that shares stories and discussions from the queer life experience. I'm Jay. Of course, you know me pretty well. This is episode 37 now, uh, which is kind of like a holy cow number for me. I've, I've been doing this for a little while now, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. And just as an aside, if anyone out there has listened to all 37 episodes, I'd love it if you could shoot me a message and just... Tell me what you think of the show and kind of the, the direction it's gone and, and how it's changed and evolved. I'd, I'd really like that. Well, I want to give a shout out to the show's sponsor, Rebecca Jonesy, author of the Mabs Doll series. Rebecca is a good friend of mine and a great ally to the queer community. And if you like stories about fae and romance with action or fantasy, I mean, you're going you're gonna to just love her book. So you can make sure you can find her uh, link to her website right in the episode show notes. Well, we have a very special guest today, actor and comedian Jason Stewart. Jason has worked in the entertainment industry for many years and acted in movies such as The Birth of a Nation and Tangerine and television shows including Smothered and Goliath. Jason, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice. How's the weather out there in Palm Springs? It's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's about three degrees here, so I'm... I'm oh, honey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm very, very jealous. Well, you do have a choice. It is a free country. That's true. And, you know, I've been I've been pushing, but my wife is happy here. Is he, her, her family's here, so I, I can't uh, uproot oh, I, I her. Understand that. I understand that. <laughs> well, well, somebody moves, everybody goes along. That's true. You got that. Maybe I ought to just try that. Maybe I just go and everyone follows, but if, if it were... If it were my well, luck, no, the other part of the family, not your. Oh, your, okay, okay. I was gonna say with with my luck, I'll come out there, and you'll end up having to put me on your couch because she won't come with me. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I gave you a little bit of an intro there, but before we get going, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, as the, as you said, I'm an actor and a comedian. I've been acting and doing comedy since I was a baby boy. I've been in over 250 film and television shows as both. Um, I guess a lot of people know me, uh, from the day from playing Dr. Thomas on my wife and kids to being in, uh, the uh, historical drama, the birth of a nation, certainly. And so many different, in my standup special, making it to middle, making it to the middle, uh, that was on here TV a number of years ago. I've had quite a number of milestones in my career. And then last year, my book, shut up, I'm talking, my autobiography came out through CCB publishing which is available on Amazon and through my website. And that has certainly given me a little bit of cachet. But it's interesting. I've had one of those careers where if it were 1973, everybody would know me. But now it's a different thing because I, there's so many different platforms to see things on. And different. And whether you're you know, inter, interested in watching action or comedy or drama or you, know, you, you watch those things now, of your own accord rather than in the days we had, you know, four networks and that was it. Yeah, it's certainly different now. And I was actually watching your, uh, watching your show smothered on uh, Amazon oh. prime just be, just before this interview. And I'm, I'm upstairs and I'm, I'm measuring out uh, fabric because I'm, I'm making some, uh, some tote bags to give away as gifts. And I'm, and I'm laughing so hard that my, my cuts are all jagged. I'm like, damn it, Jason, now I got to go back and redo this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> but it's no, good stuff. No more funny shows. Yeah. Smothered is on Amazon. It's a, 
I partnered with a friend of mine, Mitch Hara, a very talented guy. And we did a series about two men who have been in a relationship for 30 years who hate each other but can't afford to get divorced. It's 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 great. And, you know, even even the description doesn't doesn't quite do it justice. You just you don't know, I think, until you actually pop it on. So that was fun. It's um, seven <laughs> I call bite size episodes. They're all like five minute episodes. Yeah. And we have some wonderful guest stars in it. Erica Urban from American Horror Story. Uh, Carol Ida White from Laverne and Shirley years ago. Uh, Scott Krinsky from Chuck. Uh, Helen Hong from uh, Silicon Valley. Oh, God, so many. Leela Ali Raja from How to Get Away with Murder. Just so many wonderful people. I definitely recommend uh, to anyone out there listening, uh, definitely check out Smothered on Amazon Prime. And uh, not Smothered, the reality show. It's uh, Smothered. No, no. <laughs> and if they want to go to just go to SmotheredTV.com. It's also available on Reverie, YouTube. And uh, if this is going out of the country in, in London, it's on pause. Uh, it's on uh, Roku and Apple TV and so many things, Android TV and all sorts of stuff. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we really want people to be able to see the work. Yeah, heck yeah. I think that's that's a great idea. Well, we're kind of talking about the, the here and now, but I kind of want to... I want to dial back time a, a little bit here because you you and I have actually talked uh, just a few days ago and and you you mentioned several things that that really piqued my interest so I want to kind of dig into them a little bit. Um you know you're you're a gay man and Jewish, right? Yes, but I'm only gay now on the weekends. It's too hard to be gay. Every <laughs> okay, okay. I start on Friday, and then on Saturday I get in there, and, and then Sunday I'm so tired I have to lie down. And then Monday I'm just moving furniture with a lot of straight guys. <laughs> it's a it's a hard hard life. Uh, but you grew up in the the '60s and '70s, and I'm just you know it's it's a little bit different climate back then. And I'm not talking about the temperature. Could you tell me a little bit what about what life was like? You know, growing up in the well, 60s what, and 70s? It's so funny. I'll, I'll do it to you this way. Yesterday, I got a little melancholy. I'd been reading that new book uh, about Cary Grant uh, mm-hmm. by Scott. Uh, let me see, let me just say if I say his name right. I got the book right here in my office. I want to say his name. By Scott Iman. And it's, it's a book about Cary Grant. And it was really fascinating because... It was the lineage of a bisexual or gay or straight man. We really don't know exactly because until 1973, being a gay person was considered a disease. And most people that were gay or bisexual or trans or anything that wasn't heterosexual led their lives trying to be heterosexual. I always say that it was like a job for me. It was like trying to, you know, find that heterosexual girlfriend. I worked very hard. And I, by reading that book, I, I, there was a point in the book where Bill Royce, a writer, was a good friend of Cary Grant's. And when he was in his, I think it, when he was older, 60s or 70s, they had hung out quite a bit. And he was sort of like a mentor to, Cary was sort of a mentor to Bill. And they, they finally, Cary opened up and started talking about his sexuality. And in the book, and I'm quoting from the book, he says, when I was younger, I was gay. And then I became more bisexual. And then they talked about Randolph Scott and he sort of inclinated in the book that Carrie had sort of, you know, mooned, oh yes, him, you know, like a lost love, the, the man that got away. And then he said, and then I became straight because I wanted to have 
a, a, a life where I could get married and have a child. And I wanted to be married and have children. So the idea of being in a relationship and being married with children, he tried five times. And he says that each of his wife left him. He never left them. So there's an inclination that he just was not um, happy in those relationships or not capable of being happy because of whatever reason. And it really sort of saddened me thinking, God, man, there's just no way. And I remember feeling sort of the same way growing up. You know, I remember feeling how there was no people. There was no gay people anywhere. The only gay person I ever saw was on a show called PM Magazine, which was sort of like an entertainment magazine kind of TV show. And I remember there was a, a woman named Carnion who was trans. She was a folk singer and she started talking about her feelings. And I remember, oh my God, that's me. And then I thought, oh, am I going to have to have an operation and be a, tra- oh my, and it frightened me. And then it took me a long time to realize who I was. And I had to do it in front of everybody, as a lot of men of my age did. And I mean, I always think of myself as being a, a, you know, a weed growing up under a doormat in front of someone's house, you know, just sort of growing around it and never being able to go straight up, just going under and around and to the side and, and having this big welcome mat over me and trying to be myself somehow and and I'm still on I'm still on that journey. Do you do you think that now as as an adult you're able to look back at those childhood years and and kind of make peace with them or are you does it does it frustrate you looking looking back or what does uh, it like for you? Uh, what a what a question to ask. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. It's just so it's so there's so much depth around it for me and so much sadness because of the years that have have gone by. Um I think during the 80s, during COVID, I was in, I did some therapy and I did some therapy and I talked a lot about forgiving myself for not being more successful when I started. And because I realized that whoever I was, whatever I was selling as a funny, quirky, kind of cute gay guy, or that's who I was, young man, nobody was interested in anybody like me. They'd say, oh, you know, you're like Paul Lynn or something. And I thought to myself, God, Paul Lynn is an older man. He's, you know, in his 50s or 40s. I mean, I don't, I don't relate to that. And I thought to myself, you know, okay, so who am I? Who am I, you know? And then you think of who am I, and then you're attracted to men. And then you think, oh, well, I guess if I'm in love with Robert Redford, who am I left to be but Barbara Streisand? So you start pattering your yourself after women. And as I did that, it always felt like it wasn't me. I didn't like being called girl. I didn't like, I didn't like the, um, the femininity of that for me. Now I don't mind it in anybody else. And I, and I totally support anybody, uh, being, I'm just talking about how I felt in my journey and becoming who I was going to be. So I felt sort of pushed into being that kind of gay man. And that really wasn't me. It wasn't who I was. And when I started as a kid wanting to be an actor, I 
remember I wanted to be a character actor like Dustin Hoffman. And I remember thinking, that's who I want to be. And then I remember going to the open call for The Outsiders, the Coppola film with, you know, Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze and Emilio Estevez and Rob Lowe and all these people. And I remember they just looked at me like, what are you doing here? And there was so much of that. My self-esteem was so, you know, low in those days. I remember if you see me on anything, you'll see how fast I talked and how high my voice was and how I couldn't almost breathe. And that's the way it felt. So in therapy during COVID, I really am learning and I feel like I've learned to forgive myself for not being more successful. I used to think it was me. And even at this age and how smart you think that I am, there was a part of me that thought, God, I should have done this. Why didn't I do that? Well, my self-esteem was so broken down that I couldn't be me. And people, and there's a real idea of white heterosexual Christian appearing supremacy in our country. And I'm really understanding it more by listening to my black and brown brothers and sisters and understanding how it applies to myself. Not that it's the same thing, because it's not, it's different. But it does apply to me in, in, a, in, in a way that's really uh, opened up my eyes to forgiving myself for that and knowing that, you know, you just can't compete in that area in the same way because you don't have the, the history that this, this straight people had. Well, and I think that people who are white, heterosexual Christian have, have never had the experience of being, you know, what they what they call othered, um, you know, the way that people of color or people that are part of the, the queer community have. And it, it's tough to wrap your head around the idea that you haven't done anything wrong. Um, it's, it's the rest of society that's, that's doing it. And it, and it really sounds like, you know, your, your sexuality. That's, I, that's exactly it. I yeah. didn't do anything wrong. No. Um, and I, uh, I didn't, you know, I started at the bottom. I worked my way up. I really should where a lot of people I know start at the top and they work their way down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's always somebody that's going to move you yeah. to well, the bottom. And there's always somebody that is going to tell you that you don't belong here because there's just too many people trying to be in this business. But And it sounds like your sexuality played a, a big part in the, the work you were able to get, which which I don't think was... Not, no, not in the beginning, because it didn't exist in the 80s. Okay. It didn't really exist. There were no gay people. It was in that weird time between Jim J. Bullock being on um, Too Close for Comfort to actual gay characters coming on television in the early 90s. So there was that time where we couldn't hide anymore. It was just sort of ridiculous. You know, it's so funny because Jim J. Bullock's birthday was yesterday and we just text back and forth. We both live in Palm Springs now. And um, uh, he was like, I think, the last of those kind of sexually ambiguous characters that people were going to play. But then I also looked at myself and I think, God, I was cute. There was nothing wrong with me. You know, I wasn't fat. I wasn't all the things, you know, I, was, I had my hair then. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't who I thought I was. And I look at that kid and it's sort of heartbreaking to me. I, I had watched, somehow someone was doing something on me and asked for an old tape. And I, there was a, I somehow watched a, uh, a, me on the dating game 
1979 of all times. And I watched myself there and I, and I, it was so painful because I was just, I was like hysterical. You know, I was so over the top and crazy and didn't listen and was so out of my body. And I was so cute. <laughs> and I thought, and I, and I, and I actually won. But I was so completely not myself. And I sort of, you know, I do have regret for those years that are lost, you know, that time, you know, to go on a date, to have that first kiss that wasn't behind closed doors, to have that first romance that wasn't with a married man, to have that first, you know, going to a prom, that all that self-esteem, all that putting yourself on a pedestal for a moment. I didn't have any of that. You know, I led a life of shame for a very long time until I came out in the uh, in 1983. I'm sorry, 93. 93. Well, and you came out in in a in a big way too. And I and I know that story has been told already. You came out on on a uh, on a talk show, didn't you? Yeah, on the Geraldo show. Yeah. It was a show called Unconventional Comedians, and it changed my life. And I was frightened. And I was it was way before. Ellen or Rosie or Ricky or Elton or, you know, any of those people. And it was, a, I, I, I still don't know how I had the courage to do it. Do you, do you feel like, because I, I can't, I can't imagine that, you know, I, I, I cannot at all, but do you feel like afterwards, like this, this feels like it, it would be a kind of like a, a pivot point in your life. Do you feel like afterwards, things started to be different or did that oh, take yeah. a while Your change i became a national touring headliner i started guesting on sitcoms i had a, i had a place i was the funny gay guy and it was okay to be that in a small way everybody you know there's a there was a keep my place kind of thing which i've had almost my whole career you know I have a new manager that I'd worked with literally 25 years ago that I started working with again. And he sent me an email and he said, have you ever gotten a GLAAD award? I said, no, LOL. He said, why? You know, and then I called him and we talked. And because, you know, these awards are given to people who are, who are not in the middle, who have done one specific thing that changed everything. And, and also, you know, these awards are also given to straight people for helping gay people. And I remember one year Jennifer Aniston got an award and somebody asked me, I was at a press line, you know, I went to that awards and they said, what, what did, what, what do you think about Jennifer Aniston? I said, well, I guess she must've had lunch with a gay person because I don't know. Oh my gosh. And I heard what she's done. Maybe she's, you know, given money because she's so wealthy and, and that's certainly so appreciated or, She's been a, an ally, but I have not heard of it. But I, they, a lot of this has to do with, you know, selling tickets for the award shows so they can keep their company going and that kind of thing. And, and he said, you're an unsung person. And then I just held the phone. I said, can you hold on a second? And I just almost started to cry because, you know, no, you don't go in the business to get accolades, you know, but it's nice to be remembered for what you've done. It's nice to, uh, it is nice. And, and 
I hate to say it, awards and celebrity create the opportunity to keep doing your work. And that's what I, that's the most important thing for me to do is to do great work, is to do a film or a TV show or a play or stand up someplace or a lecture, you know, a talk and, and change somebody and change them monumentally in their life. I remember, you know, going to see certain movies and it just changed me. Yeah. It changed who I was and the way I looked at something. Oh. It happened six years ago with the birth of a nation for me. Well, I was just I about own, to ask you to, to tell us about that experience. <laughs> my own film, you know, I never, ever would ever have thought that I would have gotten a part playing a white heterosexual Christian plantation owner in 1831. I never would have ever believed that. I mean, and when, when my New Orleans agent had sent me the audition, I actually said to some friends, because I was in a car going to do a gig, and I said to my friend Jenny McNulty, I said, God, I don't think I can do this. I don't think anybody's ever going to believe me. You know, just do it. You know, so I called. I had an assistant at the time, luckily, and he was coming to my house to work with me that next day. So I said, come in an hour early. We worked on it. I put it on tape. I sent it over. And I forgot about it. And then I got a call that Nate Parker, this guy named Nate Parker, wanted to meet me. So I used a frequent flyer. I rented a rent wreck and I stayed in a shit hotel. You know, the kind of hotel that a pregnant woman was on the, her balcony smoking and some guy was sitting by the pool, looked like he would kill me in my sleep. And I'm in my hotel room and I'm practicing my part over and over and over again. And I had to say the N-word a lot. And I've never said the N-word before other than maybe singing to Snoop Dogg in my car with the windows closed. Um, <laughs> I've never said it, <laughs> honestly. I, I really have never said it. So I'm practicing it so it feels natural, which it never really does. And the, and the um, uh, maid knocks on the door. She goes, what's going on in there? I hear voices. I said, oh, it's nothing. It's just a bunch of Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I drive over to, I'm in Savannah, Georgia, and I drive in this shit hotel, and I drive over to where they are auditioning. I'm there three hours early. I go to have lunch. It's in this big parking lot, a half hour out of Savannah, Georgia, in this strip mall, and they rented a storefront and made a little office there where they could tape people. And I'm in the parking lot, you know, after I had my lunch, it's, I think my point was three o'clock and I'm there and it's now, you know, one o'clock and I'm still, you know, in the parking lot, just doing my part, st standing around my car. And, uh, this man comes over to me, says, I know you. And I thought, I have a fan a half hour out of Savannah, Georgia in the middle, you know, that's <laughs> found me in a parking lot and it was Nate Parker. And he looked at me and he was so charming and handsome and he said something and whatever he said, it just made me go, Ooh, cause I hate meeting people, you know, a one-time thing. I hate one-time things. It's always hard. You know, one day jobs, one day things, it's always difficult. And so I felt like, okay, I met him. I, I used my accent the whole day and I sat in the this little, little waiting area and I went in and he asked me to do the, do the reading and I did it. And he said, Oh, that was great. Can you do it again? But this guy has a sense of humor. He's a real boisterous kind of guy. And I said, <laughs> can I be funny? Are you kidding me? Nightclub comic, you know, 
20 million years. So I did it again. I said to him, could, and because I, you know, an experienced actor, and I say this to, if there's anybody listening, I said, hey, can I, I had two scenes. Can I do both scenes again? He said, sure, because I needed a sort of run up because there was a, a, a very large um, monologue that I did, a walk and talk that was a page and a half. And uh, I did that. And he said that, you know, that was great. Thank you very much. I said, thank you very much. This is a great project and um, good luck to you. And that was it. Next day I get a call and I get home and I get a call from my uh, agent's assistant because my agent was in the office that day. And she says, how's your day going? I said, well, it's fine. She says, well, it's a lot. It's about to get a lot better. I said, why? She says, well, you got the part. And I said, well, what part? Because <laughs> I assumed it would have been something else I auditioned for, an independent film or an episodic television thing. And she says, no, no, no. This is the plantation owner. And I just gasped. And I said, don't lie to me. This is the truth, right? She says, no, you got it. And I just, I just burst into tears. And the one thing that really um, I learned from being in this movie, it was just an incredible uh, experience of ensemble. It was almost like a theater company. Nate created this incredible um, environment of everybody had a voice. And I was around all these black people who were telling their own story. And I was there to be of service to that, playing a villain. I played a, you know, there was three uh, villains, murder, rape, and torture. I was rape. And I wanted to do this with the most integrity possible. But being, you know, a liberal gay Jew, I couldn't very well believe what I was doing. So I read the script once and never read it again. And I did all the scenes with each purpose, what I had in each scene. And I played an older guy telling a younger guy how to help him with his business. His and that's what I did. And everything attached to that was something that this guy would do. And I remember that I arrived five days early. I have a friend, Jerry Rosenberg, a producer friend that lives in Florida. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to come. Can I stay with you? He lived an hour and 45 minutes away from where we were shooting. And I said, can I do that? And he says, yeah. And I came to visit him and I called, uh, Nate's office. And I said, look, if there's a table read before the film starts, or if there's a, you know, or I'd like to meet with the director to talk to him before. So they kept changing the appointment assistant. And later I found out his, his assistant was Denzel Washington's daughter. I didn't know that at the time, who I think is a lesbian. I'm not sure, but I don't quote me. Um, so it was sort of cool. And, uh, I, he kept changing the appointment. I finally drove up there. I rented a car again on my own dime. And I drove an hour and 45 minutes. I was there early, of course. And I drove to the house that he had rented, which looked like it was Thanksgiving. His family was there and his mom and his kids and his wife and his cousins. And he had an office above the garage that he was using. And he didn't have shoes on. He put his shoes on and we walked up there. And he and I said, you know, I said, as I was sitting down, I just said, thank you so much for casting me. And he turned and he said, no, thank you. And then he turned his head and he went to pick up the script. And I, again, almost like lost it. Everything about doing that film and being a part of it was um, all a combination of everything that I had done in my career to go from coming out on Geraldo to 
playing this great character role in this film, it really changed me as a human being, as a man, and as an artist. And I'm forever grateful for it. Oh, that's that's an incredible thing, and I and I absolutely love that story. Thank you so much for, for well, telling us that. Even longer, and you can go to. In, in, I hate to be a, a plug, but in my book, "Shut Up, I'm Talking." It's called, <laughs> there's a whole story called "The Birth of an Actor," and uh, it's in there, and it's available on my uh, website. and And I even autograph them if people want them. They can uh, buy the book from me if they want it autographed, because I don't know how to do it through Amazon. <laughs> Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a, a link so that people can find you and the book right on the episode show notes here. So uh, so no 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 worries about that. Website has everything. Okay, wonderful. Well, and I I do I I know that uh, you have another appointment coming up here in just a few, but I, I do want to ask you one more thing. Um, you know the the last few years have been especially tumultuous here uh, in America. Uh, that's that's where we are with uh, 2020 acting as a shining beacon for all the, the worst that humanity has to offer. And I'm just wondering if you could give me kind of your thoughts on all the, the struggles for human rights and justice that are being fought right now. Oh, boy, that's a sweeping question. <laughs> um, Feel free to pick and choose. Certainly it's been... Uh, an embarrassment as an American to have Trump as president. It was uh, unsettling. It was uh, scary. It was frightening at times, shocking. Um, and I believe when that does happen, certain work dries up for LGBTQ people because all the money goes into protecting ourselves rather than uh, supporting ourselves. So that is the way it affects you in one way. And also um, there comes a time when your age has something to do with whether you're hireable and how people feel about that in terms of what's happening in the country. A lot of people were very upset about the idea of so many older people running for president, certainly. And that makes sense to me. And that was something that I thought about a lot. I mean, I was originally a Bernie or Elizabeth guy, and then a little of, of uh, Kamala, and then a little bit of a, um, I, I mean, I love Pete Buttigieg, but he's so young. It just seemed like this is such a big, big, job right now of what's going on that it seemed like we needed somebody that had already done this that had been in the trenches and that's what's sort of neat about joe biden to me is that everybody that he has hired is to be the head of all the different departments in our country are people that who are at the top of their game whereas trump you know all these thugs and sort of strange businessman with odd associations and or, or who had never done any of these kind of jobs. Maybe they were accomplished in other areas, but certainly not the area they were going into. So I have some hope in that area. And I have some hope now, you know, but I do feel like a, a bit of a, a beaten up old car <laughs> from all of this. <laughs> well, and I think that that's a, uh... 
that's kind of how I feel. Well, not necessarily the beaten up old car. Uh, maybe I've been run over a few times, but uh, I, I have hope. And I think that finally um, we're starting to have hope again. So I'm, I'm <laughs> really, I hope there it is again that uh, we need to laugh can... a bit now. We need to laugh a little more. We need yeah. to. That's why I'm so glad to be a part of Smothered and working with Machera on this. And and we had some really great news last week. We got nominated for the Queerty Award. Oh, awesome. For, I was nominated for Best Digital Performance. We both were, but Best Digital Performance uh, and also Best Digital Series for Smothered. And if you go to Queerty, I think it's Q-U-E-E-R-T-Y.com, you can vote for us every day. Isn't that insane? They want people to vote for every day until the 16th. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a lot to ask of people. So I, most likely I probably won't win. But I, but it's just great for our series that we've been nominated. Yeah. And that really felt wonderful yeah. uh, to get that acknowledgement. And we've also been meeting with people to turn it into a half-hour series. So that's a possibility. And there's be... a possibility of a second season for the five or ten minute episodes also. So we have a lot of options we've been writing. And we'll see what happens. Very, very cool. And I'll, I'll put the link to the uh, Queerty Mother Awards. TV. There yeah. yeah, Mother TV. Okay, awesome. Well, I know you've got to go. Is there Are there any last thoughts you want to share with people? Um, yes. I, I, I think in this day and age that we have to start thinking of other people other than ourselves. And we have to find a way, and I still haven't found it, to deal with all these people that feel um, that they're not that they're they're not being heard. And I think I I'll say it to you this way: when I was doing the press lines for Birth of a Nation, I had a very pretty blonde woman ask me how I felt about playing a plantation owner, how I feel about being in this film, and I said, you know, and I said to her. I feel so grateful that I got this part. And how do I feel about it? Well, I feel I feel as though it's time to just sort of take off my shoes, put on the shoes of my uh, black and brown brothers and sisters, and just shut up and listen. Because my opinions don't matter on these subjects. It doesn't matter how I feel. I should be, if, if this amount of people say that this happened to them and this is happening to them, I should have the sensitivity and the um, wherewithal to believe them and listen and be of support and not say, well, this happened to me. Uh, this happened to me. Oh, well, I, why do I, well, I didn't do anything. It's not about me. And I think so many people think that it's an attack on them. It's not. People are trying to get their rights and be treated as an equal. And black people in this country have not been treated as equal as, you know, a, a lot of different minority groups have not. And the white supremacy in our country is not just the Ku Klux Klan members and the Proud Boys and the you know, the boogaloos and all the, you know, the white nationalists. It's not just all those people that you see coming. There's an entitledness of a certain group of people because that's the way they were raised, that they would just get things. And when they don't, they're upset, which makes sense. I mean, Donald Trump told these people that he, they, he was going to get them stuff and then it didn't happen. And it's upsetting. 
if you put all your eggs into this basket and say, hey, we're going to try something different, and I give them the benefit of the doubt somewhat, even though it's very difficult for me, because I feel you could see this man coming a mile away. You know, he has the personality of a carny or a, a this sideshow person. He just and he had he had he had a very long long history of of lawsuits and cheating people, and it wasn't he wasn't somebody that wasn't known to the showbiz community. So the idea of someone like that taking the highest office and guiding, you know, uh, white heterosexual Americans just seems really unfair and like he duped them and and uh, it just seems like a, a travesty of sorts that this is going to be a stain on our records. But we will recover, hopefully, and we will move on. And hopefully what we can do is we can learn from this. And I always say when you're going up in the elevator of life and you're successful, take people with you. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I absolutely could not agree more with, with everything you just said. I think that was, that was perfect. And uh, I think that's a great way to end the show. Jason Stewart, you are amazing. Thank you so much for Thank joining so me. All right. And I, I look forward to hearing from people on social media. I uh, answer all my own social media myself. Sometimes I'm a little slow at it, but I do get to it. So you can be, you can get to me all through my website, jasonstewart.com, S-T-U-A-R-T. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, everybody out there, thank you so much for listening and sticking with me all this time. I know you have a lot of uh, digital content uh, options out there, so I really appreciate it. And until next week, everybody, stay safe and stay strong.